0: hello and welcome to real-time strategy a bi-weekly podcast examining the gaming industry through the lens of public relations i'm one of your hosts sam Mosier, joined by my co-host caitlin redwing how are you doing this week
1: i'm good thanks for having me on this episode i know i wasn't originally supposed to but i'm always happy to be on
0: hey it's this is gonna be a fun one (laughs) i'm happy to have you here and uh Caitlin and I are joined this week by Triple Point partner Eddie Mae Jukes to discuss the future of E3. This was quite the uh, hot button story when it broke a few weeks ago. So we're going to dig into our histories with E3, what the future of the show may look like. Um, But before we get into all that, let's first start with Eddie Mae. You're new to the real time strategy world. I sure am. Longtime listener, first time caller.
2: <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate
0: <laughs> you being here. Thank you
2: for having me, Sam and Caitlin. Um, so, I'm a partner with Triple Point, have been with the agency for a very, very long time, um, back starting when we were Conky Communications, and um, have really seen so much change in the video game industry, which has been um, incredibly fun just to watch. Um, the transformation through various console cycles, through mobile becoming a thing that anyone actually cared about, to digital distribution, of course, and um, really everything in between. So taking a look back at the history of E3, just to refresh my uh, memory, was was kind of fun just to have that walk down memory lane. Um, But my role at the agency is very much around um, building out um, a wonderful team and an exciting list of clients for us to work on. Because we think that if we have um, talented people working on exciting clients, um, how can you lose? Mm-hmm. That's when your, uh, your work becomes fun and, and we can deliver outstanding results. So I do a lot of new business and um, provide strategic guidance as well as help um, cultivate our outstanding team, including you guys.
0: Well, we're happy to be here with you. How did you get into tech and games PR?
2: So, I went to Stanford and was therefore, you know in the Bay Area and decided to to stay here. And I'd worked for some different um, companies doing some some product testing. I worked for an audio production company um, and had studied communications because I was always very, very interested in the media. Um, I'm one of these people who loves to read everything you know, if you're walking by a sign, I'm reading the sign. I'm reading the book. (laughs) I'm reading the magazine. I'm reading the article. And I also grew up playing games. Um, My sisters and I always had the latest consoles, grew up in the era of, you know, of Nintendo and um, had the Sega consoles and would just spend a lot of our free time, you know, playing games. So it, as with you guys and anybody who's who's growing up and is probably over, or let's say under the age of even you know 45 years old at this point, games have been a part of mainstream media. And so, being in the Bay Area, being interested in technology, um, games really made a lot of sense because at that point, um, the Bay Area was one of the centers of the universe for the games industry. It's arguable whether it will be in the future. I feel like, um, you know, geography and work are currently in a state of upheaval, but um, it made a lot of sense.
0: That's awesome. As you make a good point about how everything is becoming more decentralized, but I'm sure it was very exciting to be around all of that coming up and watching it happen in real time.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, driving down the, the 101... Um, and seeing signs for gaming companies or driving into the city and see the big Sega neon sign (laughs) in San Francisco. That was always just like, I don't know. It was really exciting for me.
0: So speaking of games, is there anything you're really into right now that that you're playing and a fan of?
2: Oh, dear. You know, so I have a little baby. um, And right now, I have just I have so many things on the list of everything that I want to do and I don't have that much time. So when I get to play a game, I try to do something with my daughter who's who's 6 and um you know we'll play we'll play games on the Switch. She's primarily interested in non-competitive games. So Animal Crossing is one of her favorites. Even something like Mario Kart, she doesn't like it cuz she can't fudge that she won. <laughs> <laughs> So she's, too, she likes to win she's everything. too
1: competitive, so she can't play competitive games.
2: <laughs> yeah, she's a trickster. So she has to be able to say that she won. And she's like, I would prefer a game where there's no winning. I'm like, sure, Sloan, fine. So oh, you can kind of c- copy that that concept to literally anything. Could be Candyland, <laughs> could be Spot It, anything. But, um, you know, so I'm kind of in that family, young kids moment with games and I'm looking forward to having a little bit more, you know, free time to, to dive into more personal (laughs) entertainment soon.
1: (laughs) Is there any like one game that comes out this year that you're hoping you have time to get to?
2: (sighs) That's a good question. I will let you guys know, um, as a follow-up to this, but I will return it with a question to you. What do you guys have on your list for this year that you think is the best game for, for family? That would be appropriate for for younger kids
1: that's coming out or that's like already out,
2: yeah or or just I don't know that's something that's your favorite current game or coming out soon in 2022 that's good to play with little kids because I've been playing um, some some Quest two titles, and none of that's really accessible for her, so right I don't know. it's harder because she's like, I want to play too. I'm like, I'm afraid you're gonna break everything. <laughs>
0: i can't imagine growing up with vr now that you say that that's a whole nother topic of conversation but yeah <laughs> that's
1: actually yeah. funny we shared it i think on slack but one of our clients was on hgtv because they were like renovating a home and their son was there and he had a vr headset and they're like what are you doing he's like playing job simulator he's like i'm making hot dogs it's like what a <laughs> funny thing to hear come out of a child's mouth like well yeah no she so
2: we have this i have the simulator games and she's like i don't and i I showed her a video because i'm like you can't really play but i'll show you what this is about and she's like do you have to actually do all of those things (laughs) i said yeah you do and she's like i don't like that that's not
0: a game (laughs) in terms of games coming out this year that i'm excited for that are good for families uh it what it's exciting for me is because it ties back all the way to a game i used to play growing up with family all the time uh Lego Star Wars: The Skywalker oh, yeah. Saga. Ooh. I played that pick. on the couch with my brother uh, way back when. It was, you know, the, it, it was the prequel, the original Lego Star Wars games, uh, and so those that series has always been really accessible. Usually, just two player, but um, I'm a, I'm very excited for that one. Yeah, no, I love those games too. That's a great suggestion.
1: I'm wondering if because I love this game, and it's kind of competitive, but you're not like playing against people, but overcooked.
2: Mm -hmm. oh yeah that's another good yeah yeah that's cooperative it's cooperative
1: yes so really the only one you have to be upset at is yourself if you don't get the (laughs) score you wanted but that one's a lot of fun and i i've actually gone back with some of my like my niece and nephew i just went back and played the mario the 64 which Mm -hmm. i'm blanking on is that just super mario world I think so. Yeah, And she, like, my niece specifically really loved it. Even though it, like, looked the way it,
2: like, looked, she didn't care. It still looks cool. I mean, I think it's iconic the way it looks at this point, right? Yeah. Especially, like, the music. um, Yeah. And also for younger kids, something that's very, very interesting is through the lens of someone who saw the original launch, particularly of these Nintendo games, How much of today's media for kids uses sound effects, movement styles, Mm -hmm. even just like the way the stories play out that are taken directly from specifically Nintendo games. Yeah. So my daughter, for example, my daughter watches this show called True in the Rainbow Kingdom. And I don't know, you just have to check out an episode. Every single sound effect and kind of visual characteristic is directly taken from Nintendo
1: hmm. oh I think I've seen this with my niece
2: yeah, yeah so that it's very it's it's going to be familiar to kids yeah. even if it looks not current generation graphics right yeah
1: has she played um, entitled goose game no I feel like as a kid I just would have loved going
2: around honking like as a goose it's also a lot of like phys- it's physical comedy which mm-hmm. really works for the younger audience too yeah
0: One last question, Eddie May, before we move on to our main topic. What is your favorite game of all time?
2: Okay. So this sounds simple, but I really, really like Monument Valley. I think that it's, I don't know, the puzzle, the puzzles are challenging, but not so much that you can't chip away at them. The graphic style is really beautiful. I find that meditative and um, I just love those games. Also, it's an experience that's native for mobile which is really nice when um, you want to be able to have high-quality experiences without being tethered to the bigger screen. Yeah.
1: I'm a big fan of, I think that's on Apple Arcade, because I'm pretty sure that's Mm -hmm. where I played it through, but I'm a big fan of the Apple Arcade games.
2: Yeah, and it's funny to name a mobile game, but I think that mobile has a lot of really compelling content. So. Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. That's a really cool pick because not many. I was going to say that exact thi- thing. Uh, a favorite game being on mobile is not very common, but totally, especially Monument Valley, such a beautiful game and I think an art style that's still not seen in many other titles.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I would
1: say like one of my favorite games last year, I, I can't even tell you how many hours I put into it, but it's just Pinball Wizard. Mm-hmm. Like just a simple Apple arcade game, but I was addicted to it. And it was nice to just be able to like, open it on my iPad and not have to like, be sitting at with
2: a TV or my computer screen. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, some of those mechanics are so classic that they're just going to, they're going to extend for generations and generations. So Mm -hmm. something like Tetris, for example, right, you can bring that to so many different types of experiences. And I'm still gonna love it. Mm
0: Yeah, the adaptability of Tetris is truly something to marvel at. I was just playing the rhythm version of Tetris that is on Apple Arcade, uh, Tetris Beat, uh, this weekend. They Every time I think they can't come up with another version, they do, and it's just as compelling as the last one.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: Well, all right, before we dive into E3, one quick disclaimer. Triple Point works with many gaming companies that may come up on this podcast, including Blizzard, The Pokemon Company, Gearbox, and more. Visit triplepointpr.com for our full client roster. And so, with that out of the way, let's talk E3. So just a few weeks ago, this headline uh, from the ESA broke. I'm reading from IGN. Uh, Rebecca Valentine wrote this. E3 2022 cancels its in-person event while digital show remains uncertain. Uh, The quote from the ESA reads, due to the ongoing health risks surrounding COVID-19 and its potential impact on the safety of exhibitors and attendees, E3 will not be held in-person in 2022. We remain incredibly excited about the future of E3 and look forward to announcing more details soon. Uh, This effectively means that currently E3 2022's very existence is uncertain with no dates and no physical event planned. This would theoretically leave a possibility for a digital showcase like it was in 2021. But in follow-up communication, the ESA added that it could not confirm it this year, whether or not there would be a digital event this year instead of the physical event. So with that context out of the way, let's set the groundwork for E3. Eddie May, you've actually had. The professional <laughs> opportunity to work at and I assume go to E3, mm-hmm. uh, whereas Caitlin and I only know it as fans and enthusiasts of gaming. Tell us about your history with the show.
2: Sure. So um, I first went to E3, I believe, in 2004. So this is when it was really in its heyday. So um, looking back at the history a bit of the event, um, you guys may know that it was originally part of CES actually. And it was this kind of back of the show in a tent, literally leaking tents um, experience. (laughs) And then then, um, it was decided, I mean, it was a smart call, that um, the video game industry needed to have its own trade event. So it moved to Los Angeles. And I'm going to check the exact uh, year for that just so I can be accurate here. But um, 95, the first time it was at the Los Angeles Convention Center, and um, it was just the centerpiece of the whole year for a marketing program for a game. So everyone was really driving towards E three because that was the moment when you wanted to get in front of retailers. So the timing of the show was really, really dictated by um, kind of this the the flow of sales and um, planning for physical retail. So um, you know, huge booths tens of thousands of attendees. It was all a trade show at that point with the big loophole, of course, being, um, you know, a lot of people who worked for retailers and then, I don't know, some fudging probably around that to get into the show. And then as press started to expand to more you know smaller bo- blog sites, that became um, a way that it, that it grew. But it was re- very much a trade event, right? But super loud. Um, very, very expensive for, um, all the exhibitors and, um, you know, we, we talk a lot today, of course, about how we make the video game industry more welcoming, more <laughs> balanced in terms of gender, etc. This was like very much, uh, I, I don't know. I think you'd have a bit of a culture shock if you went to E3 in the early 2000s nowadays, definitely a booth babe scene. Mm. Um, and. was a lot of fun though there were these humongous blowout parties thrown by um the first parties that everyone was always trying to finagle a ticket to or wristbands this was like lower tech time so you could like you know be like figuring out how to fashion some (laughs) type of a wristband to get in and there would be like these giant bombastic you know musical performances and stuff It it was super fun um but then you know i guess The biggest exhibitors really started to question whether it was worth the investment to have these huge booths, um, particularly as there were more like smaller scale bloggers that were attending. Apparently that was one of the, one of the explanations behind that pushback. Um, But then the show moved to Santa Monica for a couple of years. I think it was 2007. Yeah, 2007 and 2008, um, it moved to this much smaller scale experience. to lower the cost for everybody, but, um, yeah, it had about 5,000 attendees at that point, but, um, the entertainment software association was really criticized for those. And, and those events were not, um, I don't know, they, 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 really weren't appreciated. So then it moved back to that larger format starting in 2009. Um, but you know, E3 has, has a history of, of adapting to the times and, and, and changing. So they, they definitely tried to make that big shift in 2016 to include um, consumers and keep pace with other events that were on the rise at that point. Like PAX really became, I think, one of the key competitors, at least in the U.S., um, for E3 when it came to, you know, starting to have these conversations with with um, different marketing teams about how they wanted to um, get in front of people. And it was like, okay, well, maybe we don't go – fully in on E3 and instead try to spread out throughout the year using Mm -hmm. packs. Of course, Gamescom has always been in the mix. But um, just over time, like as the industry has evolved away from physical retail, that big anchor point of E3 in the summer to get in front of retailers, obviously like the, it just dissolved. Yeah in terms of the the necessity to really be there. And then, of course, alongside of everyone's ability to now have their own presence online and get in front of their own communities um, using streaming events too. So um, I think a number of factors have brought us to where we are today, and then you have COVID on top of it. And I can entirely understand why they wouldn't want to invest in um, the kind of contract they would have to have with the Los Angeles Convention Center to to host an event there, knowing that a lot of the exhibitors might, might pull out I think that this year is so tricky in terms of everyone navigating what can happen um in a physical capacity. Um and I mean if you're on the hook for a contract for a space like that, you cannot be nimble. Mm-hmm. You can't say, "Oh, what's happening with with COVID now a month out and make changes." Yeah. So the fact that, you know, it was uncovered in um in that IGN piece which is a nice piece of reporting there um, around the fact that they never actually were on the official calendar for, um, for the Los Angeles convention center. I I think it was, um, you know, really interesting that Rebecca uncovered that. And I I don't, I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. Would you feel confident investing in, um, in a space like that, considering how everything has gone over the last two years? No, definitely not a physical
1: space. And I, feel like just with how E3 has been perceived over the last few years with like security reasons and then the fact that like when they canceled in gosh 2020 it's hard thinking yeah. pandemic years but then like <laughs> yeah how successful the summer Jeff Keighley's summer game series is and then yeah. with like Nintendo and PlayStation hosting their own like in-house know. like events it's kind of Killed the need and enthusiasm for E three.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, there's there's a number of factors. At the just to recap them, it's like the digital distribution of games and the change from physical retail that no longer like if you if you're putting out a game for holiday. You no longer need to follow the same cadence the way you did with, with E3 in the summer. Um, so that's number one. Number two is really the rise of these online opportunities to connect. Um, number three, I'd say, is the rise of other really fun consumer-centric events like PAX. Um, that just, that's their bread and butter. They know how to do that really, really well. Um, so it's a lot harder for a trade event to then transition into creating a similar experience. It's just not how they've been built from the ground up. So I think that they've had interesting ideas on how to do it, but it's really, it's tough. Mm-hmm. It's a huge event. How do you t- turn that ship around? Um, and then, you know, finally COVID. So here we are. And um, the question of whether or not this is something that could be reinvigorated, would we might see again in the future? I mean, I sincerely hope so. Mm-hmm. There are, are really strong reasons for us to have um, a great trade organization behind the video game industry. Um, just in terms of the history of the ESA, it really, um, came out of the need to, um, create a, create, um, the credible self regulation system. So game ratings was one of the real, like first real wins for, and then, and a need for being for the ESA. And then you also had, um, a very big win from them in terms of, um, the constitutional um, protection for, for games and free speech. Okay. That, that is the work of a trade organization, right? Mm -hmm. And so the original idea was then you also wanted to have um, an event to really um, have your tentpole moment for your industry. So absolutely, there's a reason to continue to do this. Um, What form does it take? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's something that could be smaller and that really does go back to the trade might be the, um, the right approach. If I were doing, doing, you know, strategy around how to do that, I think you look at the landscape and you say, what are we best at? And, um, that very well might be it. And there still is a hole for that. So you, of course you have, um, you have GDC, which I think has stepped up a lot of That, at least from um, a development standpoint, but now it's kind of become the de facto trade event. Mm -hmm. So that's out there as well. But um, I don't know, it's exciting when there is the must attend event for an industry and everyone, not just in the United States, but globally wants to be there to do business. You know that anybody that you're connecting with or that you know, they're going to be there Mm -hmm. if they can. And um, that is exciting. So I would love for that spirit to continue, and would love to attend that and be part of that. Um, and what does so? Then you go. What do you? differ How do you differentiate something like E3 from GDC? That's that. That's a question. Yeah. To mull over and consider. I mean, I think GDC really excels in, of course, the education component of it, um, and I think that a lot of developers invest their time and, of course, money. It's not cheap to go to to um, to learn from from others. Um, and E3 is never. I mean, there have been attempts at doing some education. I think that was part of an earlier um, part of E3, but um, I don't know. I'd like to see what they do, though. What do you guys think? Do you do you think that we need to have um, a trade event outside of GDC? And and what do you think it could be that would bring value to the industry in, um, let's say, it's 2023? It's weird to say these 20, <laughs> twenty it twenty is. years.
1: Um, I guess... So coming from someone who, like Sam mentioned earlier, I've never been to E3. So I can't say, like, I know what E3 is and know what all of the benefits were. But from, like, an outsider's point of view and really having gotten into the gaming industry kind of a little bit before COVID, so not that long, to me it's like, okay, the trade stuff is covered by GDC. But I do think there's the benefits in like, connections are made, like, when. Everybody is at this one event. You get to meet people. Partnerships are like formed um, smaller creators or people like me who want to get into the gaming industry. like they mm-hmm. get to have visibility. you get to put faces to names. But I also think that Pax has done a very good job, like regionally having sort of smaller events where you can make those connections.
2: Mm-hmm. So Yeah, and the spirit of PAX is really good too because yeah. I think that it embodies a lot of this more of a spirit of a real feel of community, a feeling of, of like play mm-hmm. um, that is harder to capture with a real trade event. Yeah, you know? And I
1: think there's just, there's so many events it's hard to kind of make the argument that like this is needed when you have j- just endless amounts of amount of events and personally i really like the like summer game series and big reveals kind of happening digitally i feel like it's easier on the consumer to digest everything you don't have to like be there physically be there in person you can catch up on your own time at home i'm sure reporters appreciate it and it is cheaper mm-hmm. on the developers and publishers to oh, do it that sure. way
2: yeah it democratizes um things a bit. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know that most of the reveals, there are a lot of the reveals there um, people are still paying big bucks for. So it kind of shifts back in that direction too. Um, But yeah, the world has changed so much and um, it's time for E3 to change. I think that everyone agrees with that. Um, But yeah, I, I, I miss that, the energy that was around it. It was the one moment of the year when you know your parents, your grandparents, whomever, would say, "Oh, hey, I saw this thing about games on TV. That's when like legitimate broadcast coverage really hit the mainstream um, for for games. and um you would see those 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 big takeaways. and you really it the games industry broke through at that moment. Yeah. so that that is an argument, of course, for having this very concentrated mm-hmm. um, time when everybody really comes together as a whole um to break through but um you know you can make the argument that hey games have already broken through. Yeah. Games are accepted now as one of the most, you know, the most profitable and exciting forms of entertainment. They um are accepted as a a a, a, a medium of art at this point. So I don't know, maybe E3 di- did a lot of that work though. So regardless, you know, you got to got to give a lot of respect to E3 for where it helped take the the industry Um, and, you know, just hope it has relevance in the future. Yeah. Something that... um, Oh, go ahead, Sam.
0: I was just going to say, you all nailed the hard spot that E3 is in right now in that a lot of the circles it occupied are now dominated by other events or organizations that focus on that one element. So whether it's the business-to-business trade part of professionals interacting and making business deals. GDC, and in, in the education component especially, GDC has really excelled at that in terms of offering a great place for fans to congregate and uh, come together in their shared love of gaming. The, all of the PAX events, that's that's their bread and butter. And then growing up, what I associated E3 with, big reveals, we now have Summer Game Fest, and, you know, t- totally owned publisher showcases, whether it's your Nintendo Directs, Ubisoft forwards, PlayStation State of Plays. Um, so it's it's hard with all that being not as, uh, you know, with E3 to dominate those spaces. It makes it a lot harder. But I think, like Eddie may say, that's what made E3 so special is because it was the place for... Uh, I don't want to speak it entirely all in the past tense because I think there's room for the ESA to carve out space for a big in-person industry event um, that happens once a year in the way that PAX is more regional and GDC is more mm-hmm. strictly education-based. Uh, but it'll be tricky to figure out. What were you going to say, Caitlin? So
1: what you're saying, and I like had this little light bulb moment, they're two entirely different things. But something that I found the Game Awards lacked was enough time for the actual awards and there's so many like announcements and i was Mm -hmm. like this should be a like a multiple day event it almost feels like it feels it's grown Mm -hmm. like so much in the past few years just alone and we have people who go to it globally it would be really interesting If there was like a joint partnership where E3 happens and it's like multiple days and you've got like these huge showcases and announcements and then it ends with the game awards where they have more time to actually focus on the awards, developers have more time to talk about their games Um, and maybe even sort of how like CES does it where and other events might too but they have awards for CES like Best innovation, best like mm-hmm. technology technology um, announcement.
2: And they used to do that at E3, they and did. you know, having having like a an E3 winner badge, like all the different big media outlets would go around at the end of the show and give you a little badge if you won. It was is a big deal. Yeah. So yeah, very similar. Yeah. Um, but I think the one thing that you have to keep in mind is how, and not you guys. I know you guys know about this stuff. I'm just saying in general is how much it costs, right? Like to make the impact of an e three that's that is why they uh, publishers moved to to scale it down um, in for two thousand after two thousand six. I guess the average cost was five to ten million dollars for the bigger booths. It's a big investment. Um, so that's also why the game awards is all trailers and reveals unless mm-hmm. you know let's t- talk about awards and really recognize people is because this is all expensive, yeah. And that's how you pay for it. Yeah. We we <laughs> talked booths, about this. And we're like, oh, like we want
1: these things, but we know that it costs money. It's a catch twenty two.
0: Yeah, and and kind of the other element, you know, that was I always associate with e three going up was growing up was uh, game demos and hands on impressions that I would you know could not wait for my e three hot fifty issue of Game Informer mm-hmm. to arrive in my mailbox. Um, growing up and get to basically just a preview of the 50 biggest games coming out, whether that year or the year following. Uh, But I think, you know, what a lot of people become, you know, even then it was obvious, but like Eddie may mentioned in the more uh, pre streaming era, it made sense for that to be the opportunity to present your games. Now it doesn't make as much sense because you risk getting yourself drowned out by Whatever the top ten of the of those fifty games are, and
2: absolutely, I mean it's just being discovered <laughs> is really hard, mm-hmm. costs a lot of money, and um, of course you see some. There's always these exciting stories of things bubbling up, um, but it's super loud. That was always the biggest challenge with E3, and what I think now is even becoming um, a challenge with all of the different you know stream shows is just. You know, once again, you have to spend a lot of money to really stand out.
0: So as we kind of trying to, you know, as we're navigating the current problems that E3 faces, looking at what it can be in the future, one show I'm not nearly as familiar with, I think, because it's, you know, not hosted here in the States, is Gamescom. Mm -hmm. Eddie May, what, what is, how would you compare the shows? What makes them similar? What makes them different? How I know I, mean, I know obviously Gamescom's been thrown off, thrown off by the pandemic the last few years, uh, but it seems to have remained stable in what it is at least for my perception that E3 has and why is that the case?
2: I know it's a really good question actually, and I was I was mulling it over um, myself. Well, I think that Gamescom has part of its um, heritage really being in you know where E3 was trying to go, which is
0: mm.
2: part trade, part consumer. So, um, Gamescom has, I believe always, I'll have to look back and, and check, but, um, I can peek at it now, but I don't want to stop talking and kill the show. Just kidding. <laughs> um, had, you know, trade days and then open to the public. And it's a very, very large show. I mean, we're talking 2019, it was 373,000 attendees. Wow. Ooh. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> it, they... I think had the advantage of of opening it to the public sooner and cementing their reputation as a place where um, you can get in front of consumers. I've been to Gamescom; it is uh, it's packed, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like a very very uh, well attended um, place where you, it feels like you have to be. So if we, I think if E three had done that type of a format earlier on maybe they would have retained some of the the budget that went to shows like PAX instead so that I I I don't know that's my that's my guess as to why um Gamescom has been able to continue to exist um and not had the challenges of of E3
0: that makes sense it sounds like E3 was never you know with the timing of the pandemic and, like you said, a, a lot of these competitors coming and doing their own things, that E3 never had the chance to get out of its growing pains of becoming a hybrid show. Yeah. Uh, very much still trying to figure out how to do both. And Exactly.
2: While other shows had already hit their stride mm-hmm. and um, we're, we're really seeing a lot of growth and a lot of enthusiasm and also big investments from, from publishers and developers. One
0: other aspect of E3 as we talk about um, partners doing their own things or going to different, more smaller shows to make uh, get their attention there, how can the ESA in the future incentivize partner participation and get the mentality that I used to have? You know, I still think there is to some degree about E3 is that, you know, the old saying, a high tide lifts all boats, but how do you get all the boats into the harbor? <laughs>
2: I know. It's an expensive harbor, too, yes. um, with many other places to, to, to dock the old boat. <laughs> so I, you know, I think that this is very much up in the air, and um, I, I really don't know the answer. I think that the ESA needs to take a hard look at how they can provide something that is not being provided elsewhere, as we said, um, really what their differentiator is and um, the reason for being, and I would suggest that it has something to do more with the trade side, Um, and unless they're really able to totally reinvent that, that concept that they presented, which was this like kind of this festival for games, which is a good idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, having a, having a consumer festival for games in the U S based in Los Angeles in the summer, not a bad idea, pulling it off and making it feel really fun and worthy of the investment is, um, is where they got stuck. Yeah. Do you agree that's a fun idea? Would you want would you want to go to that if there are a lo- enough reveals? I get okay, that that's the other part of this. Once you start to have such a dissipated calendar of different events where you can you can be at and you have the option of doing your own online shows, um, it's harder to get a concentration of reveals in one place. Yeah. It just is. And so people you can show up sure to like get hands on with games that aren't coming out yet. I could see that. that's that's one thing. But like you said, it's really about the reveals, um, and I think that it would be hard to get a concentration of reveals there. When you still, we also have Summer Games Fest, when you also have Gamescom um, happening in relatively short order, in addition to PAX.
1: Yeah, I feel like I, I hate feeling pessimistic, but just knowing like with the number of events. We already have, and thinking like past COVID, like physical events are all on the go, like green light. I adding a whole other show to like everybody's like okay, we've got to go to PAX East and West and North, and you've got Gamescom and GDC,
2: mm-hmm. and the
1: Game Awards, and then it's it's hard to it's advocate lot. for another large event. And like you said, a lot of these companies are premiering stuff elsewhere like you've got playstation who pulled out because they're like hey we're just gonna do our state of plays and we can kind of control that it's easier and cheaper for us to do it that way um yeah
2: absolutely and also like you don't have to follow some preset calendar for your marketing beats you do what's best for you in a universe where you can you have all these options um so it used to be that you had to make an E3 beat, and developers would would always talk about how they had to make an E3 build. These are, this was it was just built into everything that you were doing, even down to your your development timeline. Mm-hmm. It's just not the case anymore. Yeah. So
1: now with things like digitally, okay, if you haven't made a certain like timeframe, we're not gonna crunch. We can just push our announcement because we can reveal it on our own, whatever.
2: Yeah, like let's look and see what the next option is for us to get yeah. in front of a lot of eyeballs. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. With all this being said, I I think it's clear that the best hope the ESA has to make E three, you know the the kind of go to games festival that I think would be really appealing, uh, but what makes it so hard is organ is the organization of it. If because the ESA is the industry trade group. And I know they've had issues with organization in the past, whether it's uh, the the doxing of attendees a few years ago, um, or just the online portal last year. But if the ESA, um, which is totally capable of able to organize press and use this uh, this all coming of press to this one location to incentivize then publishers coming and open up press-only days to make it easy for them, and then open up to the public later as GamesCon has done. And while that is a, an organizational feat to tackle, I think uh, being able to pull that off is what would make E3 special.
2: Yeah, for sure. You need the industry to rally around it again. And um, I do think there's a lot of people who would have an appetite for that, but um, it does come down to what what the financial investment looks like and and how you justify that among all these other places that are now becoming like must attend, must reveal, whatever you want to call it, kind of shows. Um, but yeah, it it had something special. It means something to a lot of people in terms of putting the the games industry on the map. Um, re- like like you said, using it as this opportunity to rise up, um, just general awareness at that one moment of the year, um, so you can really break through. I don't know. I also think that Southern California is increasingly a center for the games industry. And there's, it's so many companies down there, new studios emerging all the time. um, Both, you know, in Los Angeles, as well as around Irvine, it's a great place to have it. It's convenient. Yeah. There might, I I think like because
1: of COVID, there's also the like argument that maybe, maybe not this year. Like I am kind of leaning towards the rumors that, e3 might not even happen at all this year but in the next year or the year after so many people have moved away from los angeles and so many people are working remotely and we know like some of our clients have their headquarters have they're now a like global company and they're not going to station themselves in one area so so many people have like spread Mm -hmm. out they more people might want a one event where they all get together because we don't see each other as much anymore.
2: I agree with you. Um, on the one hand, I I just I look at the world right now and I I feel like so much is thoroughly up in the air in terms of how we're going to operate um, as as humans at work in all industries. Um, but I do know that within all of us, there's this. There is this strong desire to to be together and to have that excitement in person that you can't get through a screen. Yeah. So there's always going to be hope. Um, it will take time to bounce back. If it does, you know, in, in our in some of the the conversations that we had about this on Slack, I think Rich was pointing out about um, issues with with labor availability too to staff a mm-hmm. show like that. It's hard. Um, can barely you know. <laughs> get uh, planes off the ground right now because everyone's got COVID. Like, imagine how many staffers that you need um, to do an event like that. I know that GDC is having a pinch with with staffers and volunteers as well. And um, it's going to take time, but I'm optimistic about the future of physical events and um, know that there's something kind of deep within us that loves getting together for that moment to celebrate And that might even come roaring back stronger than it ever has post-pandemic when we've all, a lot of us have really missed that. Yeah.
0: Agreed. So in closing, we've done a lot of talking about past, present, and future of E3. But I thought it'd be fun to close with our personal past. Does anyone have a favorite E3 memory they would like to share? I imagine Annie May has ones that are much more fun um, than Caitlin oh. or I. Um I think I shared I,
2: I I shared mine, which was just that general spirit of this like such a big like blowout event and party of with everything happening everywhere, everyone running around, trying to like share access to get in and get to see what Sony was going to put on, et cetera. Like that, just that, that spirit that um, was like, it was an adventure, you know? And it's funny because that to me is very much a heyday in retrospect. But then you would talk to folks who had been to E3 starting even in the CES days. um, And they would talk about, you know, kind of how crazy it was back then too, which it's, you know, like taking a helicopter and it's in, sketchy settings in Vegas, and it's like a boys club, and it sounded like just very uh, cowboy style, you know? Um, But there was just this, like, energy around it that is my one takeaway and just the fun of getting to know people that you worked with, like all the press that you would work with, and um, I don't know. It was a party. It was great. You lost your voice. You were tired. I know that still happens (laughs) at other shows too, but E3 was just – Your feet hurt a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I bet. I So I haven't been to E3, and I had to look up the quote because I couldn't remember it exactly, but it was Reggie. I'm pretty sure it was the year they revealed the Nintendo DS. And he's like on stage Mm -hmm. and he's like, my name is Reggie. I'm about kicking ass. I'm about taking names and we're about making games. (laughs) And I just (laughs) love it. Like I could only imagine Uh, what the energy in the room was when he said that. (laughs) Just what a Reggie thing to say.
0: Nintendo's always had such fun showcases. I wasn't like uh really following that closely at the time but i've gone back and watched the reveal of twilight princess i believe at e3 probably like 2004 2005 and they're like uh you know this is after wind waker which was Mm cel-shaded and uh, you know, at the time people were kind of said it, it wasn't a more mature looking game. So when Twilight Princess gets revealed looking like a true sequel to like Ocarina Majora's Mask, y- you can see in the video. There are like some people like on the verge of tears. Like, and, and like, I don't blame them. Like Zelda is a very like emotional thing for a, a lot of people who love games. So, and then Shigeru Miyamoto comes out with the shield and the the mm-hmm. the um the sword, the master sword. It's an extremely- That was, I think that
2: was 2004.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine the I can't imagine the buzz in the like event center with people talking about that. I
2: if they did that oh, today yeah. for just a
1: Twilight Princess remaster for the Switch, I would cry <laughs> once more. That is one of my favorite games.
0: <laughs> that would be amazing. The Nintendo Direct and Shigeru Miyamoto comes out with the sword and the shield and <laughs> just recreates that it. whole
2: moment. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And um, you know, fingers crossed that we can bring back some of that energy because nothing really does um compare. But you know, the industry is has matured and evolved so much. So in some ways it's like, you know, hey, it's good that games are now more I guess just dispersed and just part of our popular culture rather than having to just have this one special moment of the whole year. It's like, Hey, isn't that when we do the game stuff? <laughs> like June. <laughs> no. It's just part of the entertainment landscape now, which is which is cool. Yeah. But also, I would be excited to see a concentrated moment. Agreed. Yeah.
0: Well, that has been this week's episode of Real-Time Strategy. Eddie May, thank you so much for joining us and bringing so much great E3 insight.
2: Um. Thanks for having me. I feel like there's about a million things to say about E3, and I wish that we had more time to talk about it because – you know, it's just, it's really fun to look back to and see what were the big reveals of each of the years and just mm-hmm. go on this, like, journey back. Um, so you could do that for hours and hours. It's I'm fun. writing I, it down. I hope somebody
0: out there is, we might. I was just going to say, yeah, somebody, I hope somebody's writing like a coffee table book about E3s. I would, oh, I would with all that. photos of all booths and stuff. Oh I, my gosh.
2: IGN has a good E3 wiki guide that I was looking at just to um, jog my memory loose about some of the, the years and what was shown. And, um, that's one place to start. And they even have, um, conference floor maps of the different halls and.
0: Oh, um, wow. I'll yeah. definitely have to pour through that. Yeah, That's cool. Well, great. And then Caitlin, as always, thank you for joining. Thanks.
1: <laughs> Good to be here.
0: You can find us on Twitter at real Time strats. You can email us any questions you have at podcast at triple PR dot com. Uh, Eddie May, Caitlin, any closing thoughts?
2: No, I just appreciate you guys doing this podcast. I think it's a lot of fun, and um, I hope to come back someday.
1: We will love to have you back on. I was writing down things to talk to you about in the future, so you'll hear from (laughs) us soon.
2: (laughs) Awesome.
0: And on that note, thank you all so much for listening.
2: Bye. Bye.